0: Good evening, you're all still here. First day is tough, I always find I feel very tired, and um, congratulations you made it through day one. From here on out it's going to be just nothing but easy, bliss, (laughs) wisdom, compassion just arising in every moment. (laughs) (laughs) So tonight's talk is called um, Awakening into Right View. Um, So we could say, I think it's fairly safe to say that the goal of the practice, the goal of of the Dharma, is to uh, cultivate the Eightfold Path. That was the Buddha's prescription was to... um, actually live a life that is rooted in mental training, which is what we've been doing all day, developing and cultivating the mind and heart, which is what you've been doing all day. Also, developing and cultivating a behavior system that is uh, non-violent and benevolent and non-harming, and um, how we live our lives and how we live in the world, so important. <clears throat> And also having some realistic framework for what we can expect to get out of this life. Being aware of the limitations of the human experience. How are we limited? And we're limited in quite a lot of ways. And we have to come to terms with the ways in which we're limited. And we also want to be aware of and optimistic about the possibilities how good can we actually be? How can we do better? How can we cultivate a whole lifestyle, really, that, that leans in these three directions? And that's a lot. That's a lot of work to do that. I think that when we look at the other side of that, we look at suffering, which is what the Buddha identified as sort of being our primary concern, Our ultimate concern as human beings is that we seem to suffer in in ways that really are quite unnecessary, as I'm sure you've seen, not just today, but probably in the last however many years you've been on this planet. And that's a really um, sticky issue to sort out. Why do I suffer about things that sometimes I don't even necessarily care about? Very unnecessary ways. And the Buddha being very clear that there is uh, there's a way out of that. There's a, there's a path. The word path sometimes is, is problematic for me because it's not like just you see the path and you just walk down it and then you're done. <laughs> it's not like that. It's definitely not the yellow brick road. It's more like mosquitoes and snakes and bamboo and swamp. and It's not a very... I don't know about you, but I have not found the path to be that well-lit. so I think it's more of a lifestyle and a process and an undertaking (coughs) this is what Bhikkhu Bodhi says about this one of my favorite things to read this comes from Bhikkhu Bodhi's book on the Eightfold Path and this is the beginning the first thing he has to say and the subtitle is the way to end suffering the search for a spiritual path is born out of suffering It does not start with lights and ecstasy, but with hard tacks of pain, disappointment, and confusion. However, for suffering to give birth to a genuine spiritual search, it must amount to more than something passively received from without. It has to trigger an inner realization, a perception which pierces through the facile complacency of our usual encounter with the world, to glimpse the insecurity perpetually gaping underfoot. When this insight dawns, even if only momentarily, it can precipitate a profound personal crisis. It overturns accustomed goals and values, mocks our routine preoccupations, and leaves old enjoyments stubbornly unsatisfying. At first, such changes are generally not welcome. (laughs) (laughs) we try to deny our vision to smother our doubts we struggle to drive away the discontent with new pursuits but the flame of inquiry once lit continues to burn and if we do not let ourselves be swept away by superficial readjustments or slouch back into a patched up version of our natural optimism eventually the original glimmering of insight will again flare up again confronts us with our essential plight It is precisely at that point, with all escape routes blocked, that we are ready to seek a way to bring our disquietude to an end. No longer can we continue to drift complacently through life, driven blindly by our hunger for sense pleasures and the pressures of prevailing social norms. A deeper reality beckons us. We have heard the call of a more stable, more authentic happiness. And until we arrive at our destination, we cannot rest content. And it is just then that we find ourselves. I I love to read that because it's so (laughs) disappointing and inspiring at the same time. (laughs) And I think that's really when we come into the retreat experience. It's like you, you kind of know that, right? A lot of the stuff that we hear here is stuff that we know that we kind of forget, And I think that the reason that happens is because there is a way in which we do all, to some degree, engage in some denial about life and about things and possibilities. And denial, in in the Buddhist sense, sometimes we use this word ignorance, which I don't like so much. I think it's too derogatory of a term. But ignoring things that we know are true. Do you ever find yourself kind of ignoring something? Like, oh, that's not going to happen, or that's not how it is. And we kind of... Practice denial about that. And then we fall asleep into uh, a not clear view. So I want to talk a little bit about what right view is, what it's not, and also just the problematic reality of this term right. Those of you who have been practicing the Dharma probably know the Eightfold Path starts with right view, right intention, right livelihood, you know, right, 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 right. So if there's right, then there must be wrong. Which already sets us up for uh, some not great perspectives because right and wrong is just too black and white, I think. But if we look at the, the tradition, if we look at the term samaditi, which is the Pali term for right view, samaditi, sama translated as right not particularly very accurately, but actually really means complete. So right view is about complete view. It's about seeing the whole picture, really seeing the whole picture, the whole reality, complete view. And to acquire or to develop the complete view, the complete understanding, seeing the whole picture, also complete does um, require... And it denotes a sense of a task, that we've completed something. So right view is something that we complete through our practice. And we get to see more and more and more of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. We get to see more and more and more of our minds. We get to see more and more of some of the habits and tendencies that give rise to some of our destructive behaviors, our destructive views and perceptions and attitudes that cause suffering. If you cannot see them, you cannot transform them. So when we go through the day here, we're practicing. We, you might have noticed you've seen some things today that you were not particularly fond of. Aspects of your own psychology, aspects of your own emotion. Probably a whole range of things that you'd rather not really take a look at. You may be rather just be in denial about. But this is good. This is what I often call the wisdom of dissatisfaction, is that we have to understand some of these views and opinions and some of these things that drive us if we're going to do anything about them. So in a very basic sense, some of the big views that we struggle with, so we could say a view, an opinion, an attitude... The way that we see things, so there's, there's, there's a worldview, we all have a worldview, and so we develop that worldview over time through our family systems, growing up in the culture, a worldview gets established, and much of our worldview is very incomplete, but we do have a, does anybody have an opinion about things that go on in the world, and maybe you don't have access to all the information about these things? <laughs> So we, we can't by help do that, but we do create these, these worldviews. We also create a self-view. So we get in this paradoxical dichotomy of there's the world and then there's me. And how can I fit into this world in a way that feels appropriate or good? Or maybe I feel like I don't actually fit into this world. Maybe that's my problem. The world doesn't want me. The world is against me. The world doesn't understand me. In in our culture, we get very much caught up in this self, other, the world, and me. But when you look at the construction of these types of views from the early Buddhist tradition, if we could rewind back 3,000 years at the time of the Buddha, this was not the way they thought about things. They didn't think of the world as being something out there and me being an individual who's in this world. They didn't really hold that view. They were much more interested in actually the world is constructed in the mind and body. So actually you make the world. Which is kind of a, makes the brain stretch a little bit. Actually from a Buddhist perspective there's no such thing as the out there. We just arise in every moment experience and we project all of these ideas and views and opinions onto the, this object of the world and we think the world is like this. And I'm like this. And so when we practice, when we come here, we are really actually removed ourselves from the world in a conventional sense. And you're in the kind of mental training camp. And, you know, so you're probably getting a lot of... Have you noticed a lot of you today? Have you shown up? Today had some views and opinions about some things. So you don't have; you've lost the distraction and the comfort and the denial and all of the things the world provides you. So you don't have to deal with much of the things you've probably seen today. And then, so then we have when we have when we when we practice mindfulness and we practice insight and vipassana and we practice dharma what we're actually watching and seeing is these constructs being (coughs) in every moment experience. This moment's like this. This moment's like this. This moment's like this. I'm like this right now. How many versions of you have you seen today? Which one of them was you? How many of you were grateful to not be in the world today? How many of you were craving for the world today? So in every moment we're we're seeing these constructs arise and pass, arise and pass, arise and pass. But we're not really aware most of the time that that's just what they are actually, they're moment-to-moment constructs of experience. But we get caught in them, we cling to them, we think it's like this. And we have three massive, very massive and enormous misperceptions that are insanely hard to break. Sometimes known as the three characteristics, and we take what is impermanent to be permanent. Right? We we take what is ever changing, not fixed, unreliable as being fixed, permanent, reliable. How many of you had the thought today, like, no, this is uh, this is me. This is the real me. This is this is how I am. This is how it is. It's like this. It's always like this. It's always been like this. It's always going to be like this. Right? So we we take. The impermanent to be permanent. We, 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 we project that idea onto objects and experience. It's like this. And then it becomes definitive, it becomes absolute. Actually, Anicca, the Pali term for we use this word impermanent, actually doesn't really translate as impermanent as much as uh, it means not absolute. So there's no absolute anything. Anicca, iccha meaning absolute, An meaning non, not absolute. It's not definitive. It's not done. The story's not done. You're not done. You're in process. But the mind goes, no, it's like this. And we cling to that view. We take what is inherently unsatisfying and unreliable to be satisfying and reliable. I'll be happy when we have lunch. I'll be happy when... It stops raining. I'll be happy when... I better be happy when they do a Dharma talk and it damn well better be good because I'm having a hard time today. The first night Dharma talk is the hardest Dharma talk in the world to give. The pressure is on. And so we... we, we, we how many times have you in your life thought had this thought or the idea, when this happens, I'm going to be happy. When I just get the degree, when I just move into the new place, when, when I just get that thing... Has it ever worked ever one time? No, but you keep doing it anyway because the next one, when I finish my house in Colorado next week (laughs) and I move in, then I'll be happy. This idea haunts my mind in literally every other moment. I have no evidence at all to suggest that it is anything but completely and insanely unreliable. But there's always that, as uh, B. Bodhi says, that natural optimism of like, no man, the next one's really gonna <laughs> really gonna do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's a big misperception. And the biggest one, which I don't want to speak about too much because it gets it gets a little tricky, is we take what is not self to be self. I'm like this. I'm like this. No, this is what I'm like. I'm like this. I've always been like this. This is how it is for me. But we don't see the not-self of that. The anatta. And it's not that there's not a self. There's certainly a self. Oh boy, there's a self. <laughs> there's a nagging voice in the background always seems to have some unproductive comment about everything that arises. <laughs> But it's not fixed, it's not done, it's not finished, it's not concrete, it's not permanent. It's certainly not very satisfying. And it's ever-changing. And our practice, our goal, is to cultivate a self that we can embody. And that means we have to continue to practice and train in these three ways of understanding these ideas in an experiential way, not just intellectually, but like really experientially seeing, oh yeah, this is like really how it is. And and a huge piece of that is the sila and the the non-harming and trying to befriend the self. I tell this story a, a lot because it was so important to me. Early on in my practice, we were, I was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society and they were doing these meta practices at four in the afternoon and I, I couldn't stand it at all. And I just the, sang the phrases and just, I just, I, my mind was so unkind <laughs> that I would just go in there and I, as a Cheryl pointed out earlier today, I would just literally see the opposite. They would say, may I be happy? And I'd go, may I be happy? And my, myself would say, I'm not happy and I would say may I be at ease In my mind would go I'm not at ease do you want to know why do you want to know why I'm not happy and at ease I'll tell you because of you and all your bad choices and
1: just like the onslaught
0: do you even like me I mean clearly you don't because if we look at the evidence of what you've been doing and how I feel and I would just sit there and I'd just get blown out sideways i just go drink Earl Grey with lots of honey and sit outside.
1: <laughs> just, like, just
0: squeezing the little bear, just trying to squeeze as much pleasantness out of that little honey bear as I could. And then you cross the line with just too much honey, then it gets bitter. You dump it out frantically. Start over. And I went into the interview and I, and I was ready to go. And I said, you know, this med thing and all this stuff you guys are talking about, I just, I, I'm not feeling it. And uh, my teacher looked at me. I think it was Stephen Smith who said it. He said, is your mind a friendly companion? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I thought that was like a trick question. I was like, no. What does that have to do with anything? It's like, that's why. And that's how we want to try to work with the mind and body, is trying to have that friendly relationship, cooperative. Uh, as Sayed Altejaniya says, you know, the mind doesn't belong to you, but you're responsible for it. So it's not, our minds are not a flexion of our value or our self-worth as people, but we do have to, in the meantime, we have to work with it. We have to come face to face with it and try to make friends with what seems oftentimes a very unfriendly aspect of our psyche. Andrew Olinsky says, If we can understand the mechanisms that construct and perpetuate harmful behaviors... We can learn how to identify, avoid, abandon, and transform them. And so part of the work here, part of the rub, I think, of the practice is really that that sense of dukkha that we talk about. That there's something about all of this that feels a little bit off. Kilter.
1: It's
0: a bumpy ride the tire doesn't quite fit in the hole well. So it's like every time it comes around, there's something about it that seems... Have you noticed there's something about this that seems maybe it's a little bit harder than it should be? Mm -hmm. But we, we want to be able to see and to identify and to recognize these perceptual mechanisms that create all of the suffering, that create the, it's like this. It would be better if only... I would be happy if... It's like, how often do you see those three ideas emerge? And so those are... You're not seeing things completely in that moment. You're seeing a very small... small morsel of possibilities. And this is why attention is so troubling. Because the way that the world is created in, in Buddhist psychology, the, the world emerges through these aggregates, they're called. So in every single moment, you have attention. Attention comes together, and whatever we pay attention to has a feeling. We pay attention to this. This feels good. This doesn't feel good. We create a perception about that. So we, we Perception is so useful and so wrong so much of the time. Now, depth perception, I drove seven hours yesterday. I didn't hit one thing. I'm, like, really good with the depth perception. (laughs) I haven't hit anything in... No. Since I stopped drinking. (laughs) Let's (laughs) put it that way. My perception is really, really good in certain areas. But the way I perceive myself and my emotions and the world, that's where it gets really, really inaccurate. So what I pay attention to has a feeling, feels a certain way, and then perception just kind of throws a quick and dirty analysis on it. This says, yeah, it's like this. And we buy it a hook, line, and sinker. We don't question it. We go, yeah, okay. And that perception gives rise to the behavior. And that behavior becomes a trait. And that trait becomes a habit. And then we just kind of get caught in these loops and loops and loops for years and years and years. So what we want to be able to do in practice is we want to be able to recognize all of the ways in which we're perceiving, dare I say, wrongly, or really, I think, incompletely. Because I know that when the mind... This is why concentration isn't always such a good thing. Because I can get concentrated on very, very small things. I can pay attention to really, really myopic things, and I can create a worldview that's like, it's like this... Like because my knee hurts and I'm a little bit tired, like that's it. That's the world. The world is bad, and my knee hurts, and my knee always hurts, and it's just like we create. Everything becomes that moment because that's all we know in that moment. We're not seeing. We're seeing this tiny little. It's like this, and we take that whole on, and that becomes a whole world self view in that moment. Let me chew on that for a while try to fix it, try to adjust it. This retreat is going to be terrible because my knee hurts a little bit. That's it. It's over. It's out. You get aggravated. And and that, that, that perception it just perpetuates and perpetuates and we get caught into a narrative and we create a whole story. We create a whole worldview, a whole self-view about why don't they just have more comfortable furniture here? And then the problem could be solved if we could just get online, order some couches or something. I'd go sit in one of those chairs, but I'd probably feel too guilty about sitting in a comfortable chair. Right? These kinds of things insanity. But we want to be able to wake up to that. We want to be able to wake up to that. We want to be able to see that. And so there's a, there's a perspective that is sort of current in the early Buddhist tradition. There was actually a whole academic book written that said the role of mindfulness, so sati is the Pali term we use for mindfulness. Sati, remember to recognize, remember to recognize. Kind of remember to recognize that you might not be seeing things clearly. Just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. That actually the whole goal of mindfulness and sati is to reorganize our perception so that we see things more clearly, more accurate, more completely, and also more um, with more empathy, with more kindness, with more concern, with more understanding that. More of these Brahma Viharas, seeing things with appreciation, seeing things with compassion, seeing things with kindness. That, that actually mindfulness is, is that's, what it, that's what it does. So when we sit here and we practice and we hearken and we see, you're actually, you probably don't realize it's happening, but you're actually transforming the way that you perceive the world and yourself in every single moment. Unfortunately, and sorry, the process happens very slow. Very slow. And one of the things that I've been saying on retreats lately because I think it's so encouraging there's a recent book came out called Altered Traits, which has been a, a hard-nosed scientific look at mindfulness practice. And one of the things that came out of the study that they, that they recognized that was fairly profound was actually that sitting these, these long retreats a couple times a year is so good for your brain. That actually, like, sitting retreats is even actually much more better than more better, dare I say, than than just even a daily sitting practice at home, because because of the clocked hours, the cultivation of awareness that actually does a lot of to the prefrontal cortex, it changes the gray matter, and it really, really is just like one of the best things you can do neurobiologically. is to sit these these long retreats, that doesn't mean it's going to be pleasant, um, but again, we find ourselves back to that conditioning that we all have of just wanting things to be immediately gratifying. I want to feel good. Now is the time I want to feel good. Mm-hmm. You know? And so when we look at mindfulness, sati is the term, there's actually one of the ways that they talk about sati that don't, people don't mention is actually, and Cheryl says this a lot actually, which I appreciate, is actually with sati and mindfulness there's actually a learning that happens. So part of mindfulness and part of this practice is actually trying to learn something. Right? It's not just being like good at being with the breath or hearing a sound or some of these fundamentals are important. Is that actually what happens as we practice is we start to learn things in a in a very experiential kind of way. In a way that we can't be talked out of. Like you know that kind of knowing when you just know in your bones you know that that that, that, that we might call that insight It's like I, I just know now, not because I believe it or I agree with it or it makes sense, not in an intellectual way, but in a, in a really in my bones kind of way And what that does is as, so every moment what we're trying to do is, as perception is in every moment, every moment there's some kind of a perception going on about what's happening. I perceive the sound of a bird. I perceive the in-breath. I perceive a thought. I get lost in the thought. I perceive a story. I perceive a narrative. I'm always the main character in my narrative. I am about you. And then that goes on. And it's perceiving and perceiving. And mindfulness, when, it, when it's there, it's not in every moment. Of course, the goal, one could say, is to be mindful all the time. Good luck with that one. <laughs> is now you're recognizing what you're perceiving. There's a knowing that's happening. You're not just buying a hook, line, and sinker anymore. You're perceiving something and mindfulness is recognizing a perception and says, hey, are you sure about that? You want to encourage that mental state? You want to encourage the negative self-chatter? You want to chuck a little more gasoline under that fire? Or do you want to do something different? And with mindfulness comes recognition of perception. Also what comes in that learning process is choice. Not black and white. Black and white is not a, much of a choice. It's kind of life and death. It's too activating. And with choice comes ease. It's like, okay, I guess some. I have some options here. There's a lot of different ways I could relate to this experience. I have agency over how I relate to the pain in my knee. How I relate to everything. And then this mindfulness becomes this uh, big arena of possibilities. And it doesn't fall asleep into the like, it's like this, it's like this, it's always going to be like this. It doesn't have that has the ability to question that. So mindfulness really gives us the ability to start asking ourselves some maybe difficult questions. I mean, how many of you today got caught in some suffering tale of the mind and, and let it go and came back to the present time experience? How many rabbit holes did you not go down today? I bet you in this room, if we added it up, I bet it's thousands.
1: Right?
0: And that's the way to end suffering. You don't end it permanently, you just, you have these opportunities to see, to recognize, no, not that, let, let, let that go, let, unhook from that. That's destructive. You could have done that. Some people spend their whole lives doing that, I think. How many of those did you unhook from today? Quite a lot, I bet. Don't be passive about that. Don't be dismissive about that. That's massive. That's huge. Sometimes when people who don't practice meditation, which is a I live out in rural Colorado now, so I and I've been building a house, so I've been dealing with a lot of like Colorado builder types. Are not dharmically informed. (laughs) So some of the conversations get kind of interesting. But sometimes I'll get frustrated when people get. uh, Being a meditation teacher and talking about Dharma, like when somebody at the airport asks you what you do for a job, like I'm tempted to lie sometimes (laughs) because I don't want to get into it. But people say, What do you do on those? You just sit there, what do you do on those meditation treats? I go, We end suffering. (laughs) <laughs> what are you doing? Like,
1: and that's really what you're doing. You
0: know, oh, we sit there quietly. It's like, no, no, we're ending suffering one moment at a time. Right? That sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> we create some too. That's not being totally untruthful. And you know, I think that we have to have a tremendous amount of maybe respect or optimism just about that idea right there. Just knowing that you, that that's a possibility, having had some experiences of having tasted that kind of freedom, <clears throat> to me that is really the seed of right view, of complete view, of understanding really the possibilities of what this mind can do for good, bad, and otherwise. And that you have this. Uh, intervention available to you. And actually, to some degree, that's really what you're cultivating here. Is this moment of some sort of intervention where you're just like, no. I'm not suffering about this anymore. I'm turning my attention away from that. And over and over and over again, and I think it, it's so easy. I know that for myself. Over the years, I've really sometimes forget that, and I forget the magnitude of what that actually means. Because when we look at the big existential question, which every spiritual, philosophical, religious tradition, you know, clumsily tries to come to terms with it's really what is this life for what are we doing here and I'm always so blown away and, and really fascinated that I really believe actually that this whether there was a person named the Buddha or not whoever this historical figure is actually really sorted all that out for us not that like he invented anything or came up with some like kind of neat, interesting little philosophical model to make us feel better about things. But actually developed or I would say found this way in which the mind-body system can can actually liberate itself from the suffering that it creates and in, 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 in a way that's so Pragmatic that you can actually, whether you've been seeing these retreats for a long time, if this is your first retreat, it's like, hey, on day one, you've probably seen that. This is why I always say the Dharma is good in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, because we really come to terms with this massive possibility. You know, and I think that. The Buddhist endeavor is not about suffering. Actually, it's about it's about happiness and contentment and equanimity. It's about it's about making making this thing work for you. But we have to understand all the ways and become able to identify the mechanisms that get in the way of that. Shanti Deva has this lovely quote. Uh, I don't know if it's a lovely quote, it's definitely a true quote, I think, about pointing out that as human beings, that in our pursuit for happiness, we actually destroy it. Because us, growing up in the culture that we did, we're so conditioned, and our perspective and our view is so set, in there's me and then there's the world, happiness is out there, and I actually have to get it. You remember that sort of hedonic treadmill, you know, this term, the hedonic treadmill, that we just spend, many people spend their whole lives trying to get it, trying to get it, trying to get it, trying to get it. To get it. And even we see people right in the media and the world, and maybe you know people who sort of have it all, and they're totally unhappy. So we know it doesn't work. Right? We know it doesn't work. But when it's The hedonic treadmill versus an empty log cabin miles and miles from civilization in the woods, that's a tough, that can be a tough moment to negotiate. (laughs) Like, maybe the hedonic treadmill, not so bad. I'll take my chances. I also like to think of the of this historic Buddha person, Siddhartha Gautama, as being somebody who was probably deeply unsatisfied and unhappy and confused and frustrated about his conditions. And that is actually what prompted him to do what he did. And I know that for me, you know, the inspiration in, in the, the spiritual life, as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, was always, for me, my, my in my conditions, has always been born out of suffering. But also it's important to not look at that in a derogatory way. Because it's what we do with these experiences. When we look at our histrionic lives and we look at our great disappointments and our letdowns and our losses, and I'm sure you have a nice big list like I do, um... It's important to not let those things define us, but they're oftentimes actually the inspiration and the seed for what allows us to do something else. And again, this is what I sort of call the wisdom of dissatisfaction. It's in my total confusion and frustration that puts me in a place where I'm willing to try something as crazy as sitting in this room all day with my eyes closed, trying to watch my breath.
1: I'm like, all right, if you think that'll help. You know... (laughs)
0: and then seeing that okay there is this something about life that seems difficult and so again I think we have to become really realistic and honest about the limitations of the human experience and I think that we see a lot of that here. And I know that for me, one of the big and obvious limitations is just trying to get the mind-heart-body to cooperate with itself. Because, again, the mind my mind can imagine all kinds of wonderful and horrible things. But my body is actually really kind of trapped in the present moment all the time. And, and my body has pain, and my body has hunger, and my body has all kinds of... Um, experiences that the mind doesn't like so much. And when the mind and body start to fight, that's when really we start to become reactive and we become upset and we suffer and then the emotions get involved. And sometimes I feel like my emotions is sort of like trying to be the referee between the boxing match between my mind and body. Because right? emotions are like, come on guys, you're killing me over here. And so we we look at some of these, Cheryl used this term today, which I really like, is really these, what the Buddha calls, beautiful mental states. There are these beautiful mental states, these beautiful qualities of mind, that I think are actually very subtle. Things like patience, and generosity, and kindness, and gentleness, and flexibility, and openness. And the, and the Buddhist teaching on uh, psychology in the Abhidharma, they list 26 beautiful mental states. And none of them are really, they don't have a big charge to them. So one of the things that I, I've I enjoyed and appreciate about a, being on retreat is it does give me a better appreciation and more awareness of things that are subtle. The subtlety of how we're relating to experience. Like during the practice that Cheryl did earlier, the... A lot of the energy in this room actually transformed during that, just because of the way you were encouraged to look, to overcome that negative attention bias. Oh, actually, oh, actually, you know what? Now that you mention it, there are some things going on around here that aren't so bad. I had not (laughs) considered to look for those, and so that that's a really uh, a right view kind of practice, a complete view. You're all you're seeing is the pain. And the not, you know, you're fighting whatever it is that you're looking for. If you're looking for what's not good about the retreat, boy, are you going to find it. If that's what the mind is seeking for, if that's the object it's looking for and the object it's going to pay attention to, that's not a great meditative object. Let's look for what's wrong and focus on that. <laughs> What is your anchor of practice? Oh I use dukkha mostly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just Focus on the dukkha. <coughs>
0: but what about all the other stuff? What about the good stuff? Oh don't worry about that. <laughs> this grim vipassana, I've heard this term.
1: <laughs>
0: you know that that, that that's an that's not the kind of concentration we want. But I don't know about you, but I get real concentrated on that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I know exactly what's wrong, and I'm going to fix it! Mm-hmm.
1: And
0: I'm going to oh, take all... And there's just like a war against the moment. Then I go outside, and I'm like, oh man, it's so nice out. Forgot to look for that stuff. So I want to see that complete picture. So on, on, on some degree, we all of our conditioning and all of our worldview and all of our self-view, all of these latent tendencies and habits, they kind of all can arise here in this one moment. And we have such a hard time with perception because we think we can't help ourselves either. We see the object and what we do is we all of our conditioning and all of our latent tendencies and all of our... We project all of those qualities onto the object and we think that's in the object. Retreat. It's bad. It's bad like this. Actually, the retreat's fine. I'm actually the one who's bad. It's actually my fault. This isn't going well. And we, 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 we think all of those ideas and all of those views and perceptions are in the object. We don't realize we're just... We're just taking it all and we're just projecting it onto the object.
1: Right?
0: In perceptual theory, that's how that works. Is we, The objects don't have these qualities in them. Most of the objects are fairly benign. But we feel angry towards the object. We feel betrayed by the object. We feel entitled to have the object. We feel ashamed that we even want the object. We have all these mental, emotional, uh, what they call citta relationships to these things, but we want to be able to take responsibility for the way that we're perceiving that. It's not in the object, it's just in the perception. and It's a, it's a wrong view, I don't like that word wrong. It's an incomplete view and the emotional intelligence work i do we would call it a destructive view we look at things through a destructive lens and what makes something destructive is when we're no longer willing we're no longer f- willing to cooperate with the object we're like you know what body you're out of here i'm done with you <laughs> good luck with that one right and and so it becomes destructive it becomes i'm not Willing to be with this part of my experience. I'm just going to hang out here grumpily on the sidelines till it changes. And we want to have a constructive. <clears throat> and constructive is about being cooperative, about being generous, about being open, about being willing to be wrong about the object. One of my... Uh, this is one thing about myself that's funny, is I've noticed in the last couple I love when I'm wrong. Because usually I assume the worst, and as somebody, and I assume the worst for a variety of reasons that we could leave it for the, for the therapist office. But that's something that I tend to do. So when I'm wrong, I'm just like, oh, it's so much a relief because I assume that it's going to be so terrible, or it's not going to work out, or it's going <coughs> to be like this. And all of us have these perceptual mechanisms, these perceptual ways in which we construct these things. So when we're practicing here, we have this ability, and you don't realize it now, but you guys are actually really, really a lot more concentrated than you might think. You guys actually dropped in pretty quick here on this retreat. So you have that single object focus. You've been tracking the breath and the body and the mind has slowed down a little bit. But now you can really start to open up and to see, and to question, I think, is the most important thing. Am I perceiving this? Am I... Viewing this? Am I experiencing this? Is this it? Am I seeing this clearly? <clears throat> and so that's something that you can look at in the big picture. My worldview, my self-view. Because if I view myself in a destructive kind of way, in a harsh judgmental way, on the big picture, if that's my general perception of myself, what do you think is going to show up in the moment-to-moment? So if I can transform it in the moment to moment experience, I'll transform it in the big picture. And I'll have a more complete picture, a more complete view of how I view myself and the world and my relationship in it. So you're actually, the transformation process that goes on here happens very slowly, but every time You recognize that your mind and your thinking and your attitude and your emotion is getting pulled into something that feels destructive or suffering or uh, not actually happening right now. How many things that you experienced today actually didn't happen today? Right? And so when you can recognize that, you can just say, you know, and just, just move yourself out of there. Just move yourself out of there. And and that becomes a habit in and of itself. For me, that's been the most probably liberating habit I've developed in my mind is my mind unhooks from destructive thinking and storyline pretty quickly nowadays. It does it by itself a lot of the times now. I'm like, whew, I'm so glad I got out of there. Because it's all... Behavior, You know, part of Dharma is understanding that the psychology of our experience is behavioral. So I recognize the way I'm perceiving this experience, I recognize this is destructive, this is unhelpful, this is suffering, and then I just get out of it. And I come back to my body, my breath, I hear the sound of a bird, I literally wake up, and that's gone. But what happens is that actually will start to become a trait. That will, you, that will start happening on its own. And just like the metta, that will start happening on its own. And some of you already know this, some of you have seen this. And so we're tra- that's what we're doing. We're training, training this mind to, to be more, to see more accurately to see more clearly, more honestly. And I think that's ultimately really what mindfulness does for us, is it's really just a radical self-honesty. Because mindfulness at its best performance, all it does is reflect the object back to us and says, well, that's the object. And then that attitude... The way we relate to that is, what do you want to do with this object? Do you want to get angry at this object? Do you want to hate this object? Do you want to cling to this object? What do you want to do? What do you want to do here? Do you want to be driven by your habitual habits and tendencies? Or do you want to do something different? And the good news is, you have (laughs) <laughs> you, you have opportunities in every moment to transform the way that the mind behaves. This is one of the things I, I am very not that I need science to convince me of any of this stuff, but I always find it. I always find I get happy when science goes. Yeah, the Buddha was right about that too, actually. And that's this, this neuroplasticity that we talk about or we hear about in mindfulness practice, is you're not your mind is not like this horrible contraption that you're like stuck with. <laughs> that's how I oftentimes view my mind. I'm like, I'm like, my mind is just like, where's the manufacturer's warranty on this thing? Because this thing is not working right. <clears throat> but that's not how it is. It's plastic, meaning that it can it can be changed. You're not stuck with it. And as the Buddha says in a very clear analogy is that, you know, a tree that grows in a field that leans to the west will eventually fall to the west, and a tree that leans to the east will fall to the east. we will head in whatever direction we're leaning. So if we're leaning towards clinging and grasping, and I'm a bad person and I'm not very good at this, then that's where we're going to go. But if we lean a different direction, and this is really the way the Eightfold Path works, is that if we, if we have right view, at least if we kind of get some of that stuff, and I know that you do, the view, when the view is complete and accurate, it makes it a lot easier for the intention and the communication <coughs> the action and the livelihood in our whole lives start to go in this other way. And then we'll actually, ultimately, we'll fall in that direction. Because we lean in that direction. And the reason why I think right view can be so comforting, dare I use that word, or I have found it to be very comforting, is because at least if I know the direction I'm heading in, I know I'll get where I need to go. I don't have to worry about the doubt and the fear and the confusion because just that ability to see clearly and to understand this these ideas means that we're like we, we know where we're going Now you're going to probably get off lots of exits along the way and make some bad choices and so on. That's fine because if we don't have any idea where we're going we're certainly not going to get there. But when we have this idea or this view, this practice, we know the limitations, we know the possibilities. All we have to do is to practice. All we have to do is just practice. And it will do what it does. The Dharma is very strange like that. I almost feel suspicious of myself to say it, but... um, Joseph Goldstein said to me many years ago, the Dharma takes care of those who take care of the Dharma. And I have no evidence to suggest that that's anything but true. And that, that's very comforting to me, actually. And his first teacher, Manindra, used to always say, because all these Westerners would go over to India back in the '60s, and they wanted to be enlightened and liberated, they had all these delusional ideas about what the practice was going to do for them. And Meninja would get frustrated., He'd say, "If you want to understand your mind, just sit down and observe it. Period. You don't need to read the books, you don't need to know all the lists, you don't. If you really want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. And everything will be revealed to you. And that's just experiential practice of, of these retreats and this, this dharma is we just there's, there's a learning environment that's taking place. You you have no idea some of the things that you're learning right now. I guarantee it. No idea. You'll be somewhere six eight months from now, and something will happen. You like you'll just be able to connect the dots back to here. All
1: right?
0: And so I I don't like to encourage ideas of blind faith, because I think it can be problematic, but I think that there's always a little bit of that that's being asked in these kinds of experiences because of the slow grind that the Dharma is, the slow grind of the process. And some of you have done many of these, and you know know that. It's like, you know, do you really want to go back to sleep, you know? Sometimes when we're faced with that, the, the work of awakening versus just the comfort of being asleep, it can be a it can be a tough negotiation. I know that for me, at times, I've really struggled with that. So as best you can, however it makes sense to you, to try to trust the process and the practice more than your moment-to-moment perception about how you think it is, and to even perhaps be open to the idea that we're probably not seeing things completely about ninety percent of the time.
1: Right.
0: So when you when you when you when you're sitting here and you're practicing and you notice the mind getting tight. Question it. Are you sure it's like this? Don't believe the hype. Because the mind is very seductive that way. So trying to use this idea of of right view or complete view, not in 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 a global sense of like, okay, what's the dharmic landscape look like in the big picture, but really trying to use this idea of mindfulness and perception to track and to be aware of and to recognize that you might not be seeing things completely from time to time. And you might not be seeing things with much kindness or friendliness. Right? And so these are the two, the two faces, I guess, of right view or complete view with A, the accuracy, the honesty about what's happening, and then also the, the attitude, the friendliness. And if you can use some of these ideas in your practice, I hope that it serves you. So that's what I have for you this evening. I really appreciate your attention. And let's just sit for a few minutes. We have heard the call of a more stable, more authentic happiness, and until we arrive at our destination, we cannot rest content. But it is just then, it is just right here, where we find ourselves. a short walking period mo- mostly just a break to get some air use the bathroom and there's another sit at I believe 845 to 930 you check the schedule on that we'll be back
1: sure it's not 9 to 930 yeah, 845 to 930 I think it is okay
0: you can check yeah,
1: we should have one up here <laughs> we made it and we can't remember
0: um and we'll be back for the end of that sit to do some Cheryl will do some lovely chanting for you
1: <laughs>
0: To so say you know
1: okay
0: <laughs> Um, and also, is there an uh, A.J. here? You have a, a note on the board. So grab that when you get a chance. And um, enjoy the evening air. We'll see you shortly. Oh, yeah, you
1: got it Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.